Our reading this evening is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, through to chapter 4, verse 1. In the Church Bibles, that's on page 1180. Philippians chapter 3, no confidence in the flesh. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends.
Great. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, I send greetings from Marjorie Chapel. Uh, dear Marjorie, 100 years old, who's down in Meadowcroft. I was speaking there this afternoon. Uh, you'll be pleased to know she's not lost her sense of humour. I went up to her and um, I said, hello, Marjorie. And as she always does, she says, who's that? So I stooped down to her level and I said, it's Mark from the church. And she goes, ah, Mark, I had a dream about you last night. I do not know what you were doing. Um, So it made me laugh. But more importantly than not losing her sense of humor, she's also not lost her love for the Lord. I went to her at the end when everyone had left, just me and her in the room. And I said, Marjorie, how can we pray for you? And in typical Marjorie style, she started talking about another lady at Meadowcroft that she wanted us to pray for. So sort of self-effacing. But then I pushed her and said, Marjorie, how can we pray for you? And she just said that I would stand firm to the end. 100 years old. And that's uh, where we're actually going to end up in our passage this evening. So let that encourage you. Um, Because none of us are 100 years old, but there's a faithful lady who wants to keep standing. Um, It was quite an amazing conversation. Um, So let's pray now. Father God, as we come to this passage, just thank you for uh, that conversation with dear Marjorie this afternoon. Thank you that she's a living example of the things that we're going to think about tonight, of knowing Christ, of being with Christ, and of standing firm in Christ. I pray on this hot evening you'd help us to focus, that we might concentrate, that we might learn new things. And most importantly, that we would leave here changed people. Lord, we all would want to be as faithful in our later years as Marjorie continues to be. Um, And that's only possible by your grace. So please, would you help us now, we pray. Amen. Great. Well, if you remember last week, there was an image that was on the screen. Um, I was talking to us about God, uh, described in a sense as the great potter. And his work is to build a witnessing church that will prepare people for eternity. That's the purpose. And there was a little kind of phrase I used, um, which I kind of wanted us to not forget, which was this. Do you remember? When God raises up a faithful church in any place, he sets up a light in that place. And the challenge was if the church stops being a witnessing church, then the church stops being the church. Because just as a light is only a light when it shines, so the church is only the church when it witnesses. That is what the church is designed to be. I was talking to one person who's not actually here tonight, an older man in the church, who said, here's a challenge, and he's got a real conviction off the back of the uncomfortable witness talk that was given a number of months ago now. He said... I think that Long Crenden Baptist Church is an evangelical church, a church that believes the Bible, teaches the gospel faithfully. He says, but we've got to be careful that we don't fail to be an evangelistic church. And just because you're an evangelical church doesn't necessarily make you an evangelistic church. Evangelism is something we have to work at just as we have to work at holding firm to the truth of the gospel. And so tonight we're going to be thinking about focus. Um, question I asked us at the beginning of the series that really addresses the whole of the point of the book of Philippians. What should the Christian life look like? And if you've been here in this series, we thought about what it means to be selfless, what it means to be humble, how this helps us to be witnesses. And today we're going to think about what does it mean to be a Christian who's focused and on what or on whom should we be focused? Uh, I have here a, a bow and arrow When I was a little boy, um, we had building blocks at home, and one of the games we loved to play was to build a sort of castle and put these little objects, little um, knights and shining armor on them, lie down in the living room at the other end, and um, shoot them. And it's a bit like this. There's a target on the wall over there. We'll come back to this illustration, but I need to focus on the target. 
Hey, look at that. I've been practicing, you see? If we're not focused, I'm never going to hit the target. And in the Christian life, if we're not focused, if we can't see a target, and if we're not concentrating, we're going to miss it. And we're going to see today that the focus of our life should be on Jesus Christ. Do you see um, chapter 3, verse 8? This is a great summary, I guess, of Paul's heart. This might be something he'd love to have had on his gravestone, perhaps. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you want that in an even more sort of pithy statement that even hits a bit firmer, look at verse 20. I want to know Christ. That'd be a great thing to have on my headstone when I die. If you could arrange that, I'd be very happy. I want to know Christ. Here's a question for you. And I ask myself this question all week. Do you? Paul says, I want to know Christ. Question to you tonight, Long Crendon Baptist Church. Do you? Do you want to know Christ? And then an even more important question. What gets in the way of you knowing Christ? And if you're anything like me, perhaps the answer is... You could answer the question, me. What gets in the way of you, Mark, knowing Christ? I do. I wonder for you, what gets in the way of you knowing Christ? I suspect it might be yourself as well. And Paul's going to answer in exactly the same way. He's going to take a little time to get there, so bear with me as we work through. But Paul recognises that he wants to know Christ, but he recognises the big problem is he gets in the way. Uh, Let's work through it together. Do you see verse 2? There's an almost bizarre phrase. What did you make of that as it was read by Steve? Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. You read that and you go, what on earth is that about? Well, let's see if we can work through it. Mutilators of the flesh is a term almost of contempt that Paul is using to describe people called the Judaizers. But we'll come to that. If you remember in the Old Testament, there was a covenant The covenant is an agreement between God and man, and the covenant was marked by a sign. And in the Old Testament, one of the signs of the covenant was the the sign of circumcision. Rather bizarre sign, you kind of go, what's that about? Maybe it was about cleanliness. But the point behind it is that when young boys were circumcised, it was an outward sign of something that had gone on in the heart, a sign that those boys and therefore their families, as representatives of their homes, belonged to God. So a covenant is marked by a sign. And in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 17, the sign was that of circumcision. In the New Testament, the sign is changed to baptism. And, we'll, and, and that's something we can think about later. But here, what Paul is saying is, When people have put their trust in Christ, there came along people who had a Jewish heritage, a Jewish background, but they didn't want to leave behind their Jewishness, particularly the law-keeping of the Jewish tradition. So they said, you can believe in Christ, but Christ died for you, and yet you ought to keep the law as well. It's like Jesus Christ plus dot, dot, dot. And yet you'll know from passages like in Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision, where God said to him, all foods are now clean. That was all changing. You'll know those famous words from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's now no male nor female, slave nor free, Jew or Greek. All are one in Christ. And so in Jesus, those barriers got shattered. And no longer did the people of God need to keep the law because one came along who kept the law perfectly in their place, Jesus Christ. And yet these Judaizers were kind of saying, okay, trust in Jesus, but don't lose your Jewish heritage. And as part of that, 
keep being law keepers. And Paul has got harsh words to speak about them. So he sort of uses this term of content. You're a mutilator of the flesh. You're just going around doing this outward thing, continuing this circumcision. You're completely missing the point. That isn't what marks out the people of God anymore. Because the people of God now are not just the Jewish people. It's why he uses the term dog, which is quite ironic. Because dog was a term of content that the Jews used for the Gentiles. Paul was a Jew, and here he's using that term for fellow Jews. Because actually it was a term that perhaps ought to better be used as a label for them. And he says, you've got to watch out for these people. And you don't really get it in your translation. But in the original, there's a word that's translated watch out. And it actually comes three times. So verse 2 would actually read like this. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Paul is saying, be really, really careful that you keep your eyes on Jesus and not on religion. And then he goes on and says, verse 3, listen, for it is we who are the circumcision. In other words, it's us who are the true people of God, not people who continue in this act of circumcision, this outward sign, but people who serve God by his spirit and who boast in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying the true people of God are no longer Jewish people. The true people of God are people who boast in Jesus. And who put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying there's no room for religion anymore because Jesus has done away with religion. Because Jesus smashed religion to pieces because he was perfect. And he came and lived that perfect life in the place of you and me. See, what Paul is going on to say is there's two ways to get right with God. One way is through perfect, sinless obedience. Religion. Perfect religion. The other way is through trusting in the perfect one. And then what Paul does, it's rather strange. Verses 4 to 6, he kind of lays out his credentials. It's like his spiritual CV. He says, listen, if you want to have an example of someone who has reason to put uh, faith in their ability and in their religiosity, in a sense, I'm a pretty good example. But it's rather strange. He kind of builds himself up just to knock himself down. But he says, look, let me give you an example of pretty good religion. And then you get this whole list of stuff which might be rather confusing on the screen in blue are the top lines that's the phrase that is used in the text we've just read underneath i've tried to sort of interpret it to help us a little bit and then in a minute i'm going to give you a 21st century equivalent paul says here's my spiritual cv i was circumcised on the eighth day well that was a sign of keeping the law If you read in Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12, on the eighth day, the Jewish boys were circumcised. And if they did that, they were being obedient. And Paul goes, that was me. My father, who was a Jew, had me circumcised on the eighth day. First tick in the spiritual CV. Then he says, verse 5, I'm of the people of Israel. In other words, he's saying, I'm Israelite heritage. I'm not from the impure line of Ishmael. I'm a true Israelite. Spiritual CV, tick two. Then he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was a very small but prestigious tribe from which the first king came for the people of God. And he goes, yep, well, I was in that tribe. Tick three. Then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm an Aramaic speaker. It proves that I'm truly Jewish. Tick four. Then he says, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Well, we know he was a very devout Pharisee. He was trained by a Pharisee and his father was a Pharisee. Another tick. 
Then he says, verse 6, as for zeal, persecuting the church. See, he thought in his former years, before he had this encounter with Jesus, that actually persecuting Christians was doing God a favor. It was showing God that he was keeping out of the church people who didn't want to keep the law. Paul thought he was serving God by hating Christians. Big tick. And then the final one, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's kind of saying, in a sense, sort of outwardly, in terms of keeping the law, pretty good. Paul's displayed this incredible religious CV and goes, if you want an example of someone who, in a sense, can get right with God through being religious, well, I'm pretty much up there. He's not bragging. He's sharing these things deliberately to knock himself down. If you want a 21st century equivalent, just because it may not be difficult to translate, it would be something like this, and this would be, I suspect, some of you. Hey, I was church from birth, grew up in a Christian family, Christian heritage, born in Great Britain, Christian country. I'm a conservative evangelical, Christian parents. I'm pretty biblically informed. I've been to the best Bible colleges around. I'm pretty knowledgeable and godly. Spiritual CV. And all the way up to Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul had this incredible encounter with the living God on the Damascus Road, all the way up to that point, Paul had been getting in the way of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Because up to that point, it was about religion. It was about being good, and he was pretty impressive. But here's the astonishing thing. He has this encounter with Christ. Not head knowledge, heart knowledge. God just gets hold of his heart. God's spirit does something incredible in Acts chapter 9. You'll know the story. And it's off the back of that encounter with Jesus Christ that Paul then speaks those amazing words that you've got in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and in 10. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, he's saying, listen, I just chuck my spiritual CV away. It doesn't matter anymore. My credentials in my religiosity don't matter to me. What matters to me is knowing Christ. I've had an encounter with him. I'm not interested in religion anymore. I want to know Christ. So for you and me, ask yourself that question. How do I get in the way of being focused on Christ? Is it through our prayerlessness? just our natural tendency to be self-reliant I want to be an activist, I don't want to be prayerful I can do it in my own strength, I don't need God I'll just tick the little token prayer box in the morning, quick five minutes off I go we were thinking this morning about wrestling with God in prayer where we are prayerless and I suspect we all are perhaps all the time maybe often it's one way, isn't it, of keeping our eyes not fixed on Christ. Because when I'm prayerless, my eyes are fixed on me, not on him. How do I get in the way of being focused on Christ? Well, is it through people pleasing? You just want to please people. I don't want people to think badly of me. I'm actually more interested in people's opinion of me than of the Lord Jesus' opinion of me. Or might it be that kind of spiritual laziness? We thought last week about, is our soul, the care of our soul, the number one priority to us? It's so easy for that just to become the sort of thing that we just sort of do in our spare time, throwing a bit of time and energy at my spiritual growth. But quite frankly, I've got other things that are more important. I'm guilty of all those three. I suspect each of you are too. But there are lots of ways that we can fail to be focused 
on Christ. But to come back to the crossbow, I've lost my arrow, but you can imagine. If I'm just sort of talking to you about being focused on Christ, and Christ is my target, and I just aimlessly point in that direction and shoot, the chances are I'll miss the target. I'm kind of, yeah, I'm focused on Christ, but I'm not really looking at him, because I'm looking somewhere else. The, The way to hit the target is to practice, and to step closer, and to aim And every day to say, I need my focus to be on Christ. Because if I'm not looking at Christ, guess what? Looking somewhere else. But look at Paul, verse 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. He's saying, I want to know Christ. And if it's going to cost me, that's okay. Because I want to know Christ. It can cost me anything. Because he's so changed my life, I'll do anything now in response. He says, I want to become like him in his death. First of all, dying to self. Those wonderful words of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, Mark chapter 8, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. He says, that's what I want. And then he says, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's this kind of lovely expression of humility. He's sort of saying, I don't really fully comprehend it, but somehow, mysteriously, as Christ has died and risen again, that death and that resurrection becomes a spiritual reality in my own life. It's the kind of fear and trembling of verse 13 last week. Chapter 2, verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Being completely secure of your salvation, but never becoming complacent about it. It's a kind of humility that remembers chapter 1, verse 6. He's begun a good work. And he will bring it through to completion. It's that experiencing of resurrection life every day. Life in the power, lived in the power of the Spirit of God. That's what Paul's talking about here. When he says, I want to know Christ, he's talking about an ever-deepening relationship. Based, verse 9, on righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And I think that is why, if you notice the beginning of the reading... Where does Paul direct his readers' focus? You see it there, chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. And eagle-eyed amongst you will notice that's the fourth time in the letter that he talks about this. Rejoice in the Lord. Because rejoicing in the Lord is a wonderful safeguard to trusting in self. And it's a wonderful safeguard to keeping our focus on him. Because as I rejoice in him, I'll stay focused in him. It's always struck me, why does Paul have such a focus in his pastoral letters on calling the church to be thankful. It's because as we're thankful and we remember what Christ has done for us, that we keep our eyes fixed on him. The second I take my eyes off him, I start grumbling. Pattern throughout scripture, isn't it? Think of the book of Numbers. Grumbling because they took their eyes off God. So I want to ask you, do you want to join me this week in what I'm going to call the 35 thing challenge? You up for it? Here's the 35 thing challenge. And you're like, what on earth are you thinking? There's seven days in this coming week. And each day I want to encourage you to think of five ways which you can rejoice in the Lord. Five sevens of 35. It's the 35 thing challenge. Every day, just to get a bit of paper, rejoice in the Lord and to write down five reasons why you have a good reason to rejoice in the Lord. And do it on Monday, and on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, all the way through to this time next week. And then you'll have completed the 35-thing challenge, and you'll have this wonderful list of things to help you to rejoice in the Lord. Because I suspect you struggle to rejoice in Him. I know I do. 
So I'm going to try the 35 thing challenge. I've never read it anywhere. I just invented it. It's a crazy name, but hopefully it'll work. And next week, let's see if it's made a difference to you rejoicing in the Lord. We're called to focus on knowing Christ. And the question for us is, well, what gets in the way? Often we do. So we need to repent. And we need to make God bigger in our lives that we might be smaller. Do you notice as the reading goes on, though, Paul says, then be focused on not just knowing Christ, but being with Christ. And the big question then is, well, what competes for your attention? Come to verse 12 to 14. Let me read it. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ had called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Now it's hot tonight. I don't want to do all the hard work, so you need to hot work a bit now as well. Can you just turn to the person next to you? What do you think is the this, the goal, the that, the it, and the prize that Paul is talking about? Bit of brain ache for two minutes. What is Paul talking about? I guess there could be legitimate different answers to this, but if you boil it all down, what is the this, the goal, the that, the it, the prize that Paul is talking about? How what? It's all the same thing. Good, Catherine. I'm glad you think that, because I do. It's the same thing. Here's the thing. I think ultimately Paul's talking about knowing Christ and one day being with Christ. You see, what is the great prize? What is the great goal of being a Christian? It's not ultimately something that God gives us. It's ultimately God himself. He is the prize. He is the goal. That is who Paul is calling this church to press on to be with. Because God doesn't want to give us a commodity or a thing Though heaven is going to be indescribably wonderful, he wants to give us himself. And that is what he's calling these Philippians to press on for. We've talked about this before in John's Gospel where, where Jesus talks about eternal life. This is eternal life. That's not just a statement of endless time, time that goes on and on and on, though that's true. It's also a, a statement of quality. It's talking about relationship. Eternal life in John's Gospel is Jesus. And eternal life is what God has called us for, that we might know Jesus and that we might be with Jesus. I think it was this morning, but I can't remember. Was it this morning or perhaps in a different service? Are we in the Christian life for what God gives us or are we in the Christian life for who God is? But it's a remarkable thing to reflect on, isn't it? I want to know Christ. I want to be with Christ. Why? Because the goal of all of this at the end of the day is to be with him. There's nothing more wonderful than Christ. We forget that, but there isn't. But yet, if we're to be with him, we need to stay focused on him. That's why verse 13 has that little phrase, but one thing. And it's a very strong phrase in the original. There's a, it's like this one thing and this one thing only. He's Paul saying one thing. Just forget it all. There's one thing. Focus on Jesus. Why? Because he's the goal. Don't get distracted. And yet he wants to make this emphasis because you'll notice verse 18, he says, and this is a great sadness, many live as enemies of the gospel of Christ. And how does he describe them, verse 19? Their minds are set on earthly things. 
I'm not an enemy of Christ because by God's grace he saved me. And yet so often my mind is set on earthly things. But what does Paul say in contrast to this earthly mindedness? He says, listen, our citizenship is in heaven. How hard is that to believe and live by every day? This is not our home. If you live in Long Crendon or a village like it, that's really hard. Because if this was our home, it's a pretty nice place to live. This isn't our home. Your home you live in is not your home. Heaven is our home. And Paul has gone to great lengths in this letter. I've never seen this before until studying for these sermons. Paul goes to great lengths in this letter to point people to our true home. If you have a Bible, just follow me from the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 6, confident of this, he began a good work and he will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is coming back to take us home. Have a look at verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Jesus is coming back. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 16. Then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I've not run or labored in vain. The day of Christ, there it is again. Have a look at chapter 3, 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we'll come to it next week. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 5. The Lord is near. Paul knows that the best way to stay focused on Jesus is to remember that he's coming back. And he's coming back to take us to be with him. And that is what heaven is all about. And so we're to be focused on knowing Christ. We're to be focused on being with Christ. And then finally we're to be focused on standing firm in Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Can you just try and imagine what Paul is feeling as he writes that? It's kind of, it's kind of a rally cry, isn't it? Philippian church, stand firm. Why? Because you're suffering. It's going to be tough. Stand firm. Yeah, I love the fact that as he gives that call to stand firm, do you see the love and the affection that he shares? My dear brothers and sisters... My dear friends, it's the same affection that he used in chapter 1, verse 8. How I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. There's a kind of strong charge from Paul here, stand firm. And then there's the affection of one who truly loves them. Stand firm in the Lord in this way. Well, in what way? You stand firm in the Lord in this way by... Being focused on knowing Christ and being focused on being with Christ. You see, we stand firm not by being strong ourselves. We stand firm by trusting in one who is strong. And ultimately by trusting in his incredible love. Don't feel you have to turn to it, but you'll know the wonderful description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, doesn't, isn't proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's a wonderful picture of love. But isn't that ultimately a picture of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is patient. Thank goodness. (laughs) Patient with me, patient with you. 
Jesus Christ is kind. He doesn't envy or boast. He is not proud. We saw that in chapter 2. Didn't consider equality with God. Something to be grasped. Used to his own advantage. But he humbled himself. And became obedient to death on a cross. Jesus doesn't dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's self-giving. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that a good thing? Jesus Christ does not delight in evil, but he delights and rejoices in the truth. He is the one who protects us. He is the one who keeps us trusting in him. He is the one who helps us to keep hoping. He, by his grace, is the one who causes us to keep persevering. So friends, how do we stand firm in Jesus? It's by staying focused on Jesus, knowing him, being with him, and then we will stand firm in him. And so a question to leave you with, what is it that might cause you to give up? What I'd love us to do before we move to communion is for you just to turn back to Philippians. And what I'd love you to do, just in the quietness of your own heart, is read Philippians 1, 3, 1 to Philippians 4, 1. You've got the three statements on the screen and you've got the three questions. What gets in the way of me knowing Christ? What competes for my attention of being with Christ? And what might cause me to give up standing firm in Christ? Why don't you just take a few moments of self-reflection? And then what better way of turning from that and from our weaknesses, as I'm sure we'll find, to the Lord's Supper? Because wonderfully, when we get in the way, Jesus picks us up and points us back to himself. Wonderfully, when other things compete for our attention, Jesus wonderfully, kindly points us back to himself. And when lots and lots of things compete for our attention and might cause us to give up, God, by his grace, says, I've got a firmer grip on you than this world does. And no one will snatch you from my hand. And that is what will keep you standing firm. And that is why the cross of Christ is so special. Because it's not about us, it's about him.